0: Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3.
1: Money Talk. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to Money Talk on Wednesday, the 16th of February. This is Peter Lewis with the latest business headlines. Hong Kong reported another 1,619 confirmed COVID-19 cases yesterday and 5,400 preliminary positive cases. More than 4,000 COVID patients are currently in public hospitals or isolation facilities. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam said Tuesday that hotels and new housing estates will be used to isolate COVID-19 patients. Mrs Lam also reaffirmed that Hong Kong has no plan for a citywide lockdown She stressed the government's remain committed to its dynamic zero infection policy and to implementing it as humanely as possible. Yesterday, the Legislative Council approved a government's request to inject 27 billion Hong Kong dollars into the anti-epidemic fund to support businesses and individuals affected by the latest coronavirus outbreaks and the tightening of social distancing measures. The government said it expected the application process to start next month for unemployed Hong Kongers to receive a cash subsidy of ten thousand Hong Kong dollars for each qualifying individual. French spirits maker Pernod Ricard, the maker of Jameson whiskey and Martel cognac, has asked top executives from its Hong Kong office to temporarily relocate outside the city. A company spokesman said, "You need to travel to look after clients." And when the rest of the world is opening up, it's becoming difficult to justify being based in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong government announced yesterday the launch of its first ever tranche of green bonds for local retail investors. Authorities hope to raise six billion Hong Kong dollars in lots of $10,000 each. Subscriptions open on March the 1st and run for 10 days. The financial secretary, Paul Chan, said the bonds will be pegged to inflation with a minimum interest rate of 2% for three years. The proceeds raised will go to finance or refinance projects that provide environmental benefits and support the sustainable development of Hong Kong. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Louisa Fock at the Bank of Singapore, Nick Marrow from the Economist Intelligence Unit and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood.
0: Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3
1: US and European equities have rallied on hopes that tensions over Ukraine could be easing. Russia said it was recalling some of its troops from the country's border. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 index rose 1.6% to 4,471. Travel companies such as Expedia, United Airlines and American Airlines helped power the rally on the S&P 500. The Dow snapped a three-day losing streak, jumping 423 points to 34,989. Aircraft manufacturer Boeing was the Dow's biggest winner, adding 3.7%. The Nasdaq Composite Index surged 2.5% to 14,140. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index jumped 1.4% higher. London's FTSE 100 was up 1%. Here in Hong Kong, stocks extended their losses into a third day yesterday. The Hang Seng Index slipped 201 points, or 0.8%, to 24,356. The tech index was down 0.2%. Mainland Chinese stocks bucked the downward trend in the rest of Asia after the PBOC injected a net 100 billion yuan of liquidity into the financial system. The Shanghai Composite Index was half a percent firmer at 3446 in Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinax rebounded 3.1% after falling into a bear market last week when it was down as much as 22% from its recent November peak. Oil prices have retreated, falling more than 4% at one point. Brent crude oil is at $93.52 a barrel. Gold is 1% lower at $1,853 an ounce. And the sell-off in iron ore futures continued in China, with the most traded May contract in Dalian sliding over 7% to hit the lowest level since the 19th of January, after Chinese regulators pledged to curb speculation. And in Singapore, iron ore plunged as much as 13%. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield is six basis points higher at 2.05%. And the U.S. dollar is a third of a percent weaker against a basket of currencies. The euro is trading half a percent firmer at one dollar thirteen and a half cents. The Japanese yen is at one hundred fifteen point six against the dollar this morning. Sterling is worth one dollar thirty-five and a half cents and ten Hong Kong dollars and fifty-seven cents. The Chinese yuan is trading at six point three four versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin is over four percent higher at just above forty-four thousand six hundred dollars. Asian stock markets this morning in Australia, the SX200 is up a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has surged 1.9 percent higher at the open. The Cosby in South Korea is up 1.6 percent. And futures markets indicating a gain of about 260 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 809. Let's welcome our guests. On the phone, we have with us Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. Morning to you, Louisa.
0: Morning, Peter.
1: And over in our Queensway studio, we have Nick Marrow, who is lead for Global Trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning, Nick. Good morning. And over in Washington DC, we find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Good morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's start looking at Hong Kong. Um, Nick, perhaps I can turn to you first. Well, you heard there uh, another 1,600, uh, just over 1,600 confirmed COVID-19 cases yesterday, 5,400 uh, preliminary positive cases. The has approved a government request to inject $27 billion into the anti-epidemic fund. Part of that will go to a one-off payment of $10,000 to unemployed Hong Kongers. Do you think, first of all, the city is getting on top of this latest wave? Of, of, uh,
2: of covid cases uh, in short no <laughs> i mean it still looks like a really disastrous situation which is incredible considering that we've had two years to prepare for this two years um, and even some of the most basic kind of preventative steps in terms of promoting vaccinations etc have just not been taken um, i don't really think we're near i mean I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist but it doesn't look like we're near anywhere near uh, being able to bring this under control. Um, and I think this is going to continue dominating not just the news headlines, but also the economic and potentially political trajectory of Hong Kong for the next couple of months, at least. I mean, we're scrambling around to do a lot of steps, but do you think...
1: The fundamental strategy that we have here is right or wrong, which is basically to try and get COVID cases down to zero or pretty close to zero
2: um, when the rest of the world is, is now moved on from that strategy. I think, I mean, a lot of what Hong Kong is doing is uh, essentially remaining in step with mainland China. And there's been a lot of discussion around how zero COVID in mainland China is potentially the appropriate strategy given their healthcare system constraints, uh, given the limited economic shock that zero COVID has had on the economy. But those dynamics are not necessarily the same for what we have in Hong Kong. Um, this is not really a city that has either the space or the capacity to really successfully implement zero COVID. I think there's still a lot of confusion on what dynamic zero COVID even really means. Um, I think in practice, we've started to see some entertainment of discussion around living with COVID, even if the government rhetoric has not shifted towards that direction. But even then, um, any indication of that has been met with a lot of hostility by, you know, pro Beijing lawmakers, um, and so that push and pull between you know aligning with China while also considering you know the very different context, the very different situation that we have here in Hong Kong. That's going to complicate government policymaking. That's going to complicate the epidemiological um, considerations in the fight against this virus. Um, I think, I mean, in in one word, it's a mess. I mean, one of the differences between here
1: and the mainland's attempts to control the virus is the mainland has never locked down a major international business or financial city like Hong Kong. And the, and the problem we're seeing here is that people are leaving. We've, we heard about Pernod Ricard earlier. We heard uh, Mandarin Oriental moving their executives out of the city uh, last week. Um, is, is that doing long term damage, do you think, to Hong Kong? 100%. Um,
2: I mean, you look at some of the statistics around, you know, um, inbound arrivals or, or people going through the airports, and it's a net outflow. Um, these are talent flows, these are capital flows that it's going to be very difficult for the government to try and recapture and rebuild, even if, even whenever we do exit this pandemic. Um, I think as well, uh, you know, you, you talked just now about how we've had a new injection of funds to alleviate what's happening in terms of the economic shock to the city. But um, at the same time, we're getting news from you know business business associations indicating that you know 500 restaurants are expected to shut next month. Um, you have anecdotal stories of people who are unable to afford their rents. The fitness industry, the nightlife industry, the restaurant industry—they're all devastated. Yeah. Um, these are things that it is very going to be very difficult to uh, try and rebuild from, um, and I think. Beyond just the economics of all of this, the reputational aspects of this, um, the reputational aspects, not just from a diplomatic standpoint, but also from, you know, is Hong Kong still a good place to do business? These are all suffering um, from this this strategy, or maybe better put, this this lack of strategy. Louisa, let me bring you in. What are your thoughts?
0: Um, I think from an economics perspective we have our guest commenting on it. But uh, what I would like to say is this time round, uh, probably uh, Hong Kong economy is uh, facing a little bit more challenges um, uh, from the economic deceleration perspective as discussed earlier. But um, I think this time around, what makes uh, the situation a little bit more challenging is uh, in Hong Kong, we are also heading into the Fed rate high cycle. Um, I think this has also been widely discussed. So um, and with Hong Kong, uh, it's basically uh, with the part we're also heavily influenced by the Fed cycle as well. So uh part of the um uh, real economy, for instance, like the property side, uh they are rate sensitive. Uh as that definitely is going to have some impact. But on the flip side, um, from an equities market perspective, let's look at it this way. Uh the Hang Seng index may have like uh more than one third of the index compositions uh, actually linked to Hong Kong financials. Um so this size definitely uh will be the beneficiaries riding on the Fed rate hype cycle. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, the Hong Kong market has done pretty well, hasn't it, this year? Uh, despite the lockdowns that, uh, or despite the the pandemic efforts that we're seeing now, it's one of the best performing markets in the world.
0: Year to date, yes, uh, Hang Seng Index has outperformed, uh, for instance, US and. At the same time, it's also outperforming, uh, Chinese, uh, for instance, like share market and MSCI China, which is mainly the offshore equities market. And I think one of the key reasons is also like what I've mentioned is the index compositions that have a sizable exposure to the beneficiaries of the rate hike. And, um, on the other hand, um, these are the so-called old economy, like the banks, um, and, and even though property is very sensitive to the rate hike ch- uh, cycle, but the valuation is is also not demanding. They are all trading at the low historical average. So uh, mm. I, I, that's explain the year-to-date performance. But looking beyond, we do expect that the China easing signal um, it will continue to intensify, and that also should benefit the uh, Chinese equities as well.
1: Barry, when you look from overseas at what's happening here in Hong Kong and the, this latest surge in COVID-19 cases, what, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think uh, you've got the United States, Canada and Western Europe moving in one direction and China and Hong Kong moving the opposite. I think the implications, the results of that are unclear. You would think that it's going to slow economic growth in Asia and economic growth in Europe and North America will uh, persist at current levels or slightly below. But added to that is the Fed tightening cycle. But uh, in terms of the virus, you know, the debate here in the States is that we're easing the vaccine mandates and that the mask requirement for school children is being lifted state by state. So we're clearly uh, with, with infections going down, hospitalizations Going down, uh, we're uh, we're moving past the virus, so it's quite different.
1: And, and why is uh, America doing that? Is it because it feels now that the the uh, the COVID nineteen epidemic has peaked, or is it because they feel that things like these mask mandates uh, they they don't work or they're not effective? What what's the the driving force behind that?
3: Well, I think first of all, you know, it is the fact that the hospitalizations and deaths are on the decline. That's the big factor and everyone knows that the United States has the worst record in the world in terms of deaths, 800,000, but that's over two years. So all the signs are positive now. When Omicron surfaced there was a a spike in the other direction, but that has now over the past month or so uh, dramatically eased nationwide. So I think the reason is that they think that it's, it's essentially on the decline.
1: Mm. OK, let's turn our attention uh, to the mainland. The People's Bank of China injected a net 100 billion yuan, that's about 15.7 billion US dollars of liquidity, into the financial system yesterday. But it did leave interest rates unchanged. The one-year medium-term lending facility was left on hold at 2.85% following a 10 basis points reduction in January. Last week, credit growth in China surged. Uh, the PBOC reported that aggregate financing was almost $1 trillion. That was a record. And, almost, and also bank lending, new loans also hit a record as well. Um, Nick, what do you make of it? What are the implications of this surge in, in lending and, and credit in
2: January? Sure. Well, I think if you look at what's happening in China, the discussion around monetary policy is very different from what we're seeing uh, in the West, where, you know, back in the U.S., we're talking about, um, you know, rate hikes in China. The story is very much around maintaining that accommodative path, if not injecting or excuse me, if not um, embarking on further easing. And that's uh, a forecast that we are expecting um, to materialize later this year. Um, But when you look at the structure of the credit, we see uh, some areas of concern. A lot of the borrowing that we saw in January was government backed, Mm -hmm. um, and there still seems to be relatively weak demand from the private investment side. And where private lending is, or excuse me, private borrowing is occurring, um, it's primarily happening in you know, short shorter-term durations. Um, that indicates that you know, at least from the January data, companies are using this to cover their short-term financing costs. You know, paying of Chinese New Year uh, bonuses, salaries, things like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that that record level of bank lending is going to immediately translate into real investment. Um, I think this is something that we're going to keep need to keep an eye on. Um, the policy signals that we'll get in March uh, at the Lianghui. The uh, the legislative sessions um, should set more of a, a tone for how things might develop through the rest of the first half of this year. Um, but that's really been our big area of concern here at the EIU. It's, it's this idea that even with all of the policy easing that we're seeing and the cutting and financing costs, the demand side um, really isn't there. And that's tied to other controls around property um, and other structural impediments in the economy.
1: Is a lot of this bank
2: lending going to the property sector to try and shore that up? Um, It doesn't necessarily look like that. I think in January, what we saw was a bit of a rebound in mortgages, but that's maybe for calendar reasons. Um, So, for example, banks have uh, annual quotas on on the types of loans Mm. that they can extend in that segment. Um, But overall, the property controls still seem pretty tight. We have started to see kind of a loosening on the edges, um, which is probably necessary in terms of re-engineering some economic growth. But at the same time, officials do still seem very committed, still very... um, Hesitant to really engineer a, a wide scale or a wider scale loosening in property, and I think it is because their concerns over uh, debt and moral hazard in that industry are still very, very acute.
1: Louisa, that despite this surge in January, it is a traditionally strong month for bank lending. The, the authorities really are quite reluctant, aren't they, to to adopt strong stimulus policies? We saw that in the PBOC's fourth quarterly monetary uh, report. What's their concern?
0: Um, I think overall, the way I actually look at it is um, the policy signal has um, definitely intensified for the easing bias. But I think at the same time, the government is also mindful to remind investor or the market that um, anyone who would be expecting a broad phase across board, very aggressive. Um, easing measures like what we have seen in the past, that's probably not the case. Um, But what I would like to highlight is that if we look at last year 2021, uh, remember that the overall credit growth has actually decelerated aggressively from around 13.13% to towards the end of the year, close to 10%. So it's a very aggressive uh, deceleration in terms of credit growth. Um, I I kind of take the January uh, credit number a little bit more possibly Yes, uh, it's true that uh, the loan demand is relatively weak and activities in the housing um, market or property market is still weak, for instance, property sales in 30 cities, we are still seeing, like, down 40% year-on-year, and land market for sales volume is also down by more than 20% mm-hmm. year-on-year. But having mm-hmm. said that, um, there's a very strong government push, um, so it does show the government uh, determination uh, for the growth support of China. and I think um, this is uh, important in boosting investor confidence. Um, and at the same time, yes, I agree with that. Um, at the National People Congress in March, um, it will be more signal regarding how the government uh, give more clarity in terms of um, whether there will be any growth target of growth ranges and more policy details. Um, one last thing that I would like to highlight is that uh, if we look at from the property side, um, the property bonds are uh, the maturity another uh, peak maturity profile will, will be actually in. March and April. So we do expect that probably there could be a potential of a further reserve requirement rates cuts um, uh, right. around that time too. Thank you.
1: But Barry, how much do you think uh, China's monetary policy is tied in with the US? There is a feeling here that um, the window of opportunity for the PBOC to ease policy, which is sort of what it's doing, is is narrowing very rapidly because very shortly uh, we're going to get the Fed embarking on quite an aggressive uh, tightening policy.
3: Well, I don't think that uh, that's connected. I look. I stand to be corrected by Nick and by Louisa, but it seems to me that the PBOC is being very easy on monetary policy to, to uh, buoy up the housing sector in, in, in light of the Evergrande collapse. And uh, that's, that's obviously something that uh, deserves to be done. Here in the States, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving in clearly, as you say, in the opposite direction. We're in a tightening cycle. And I think that's why you've seen so much volatility in the equity market over the last month as uh, as investors try to come to terms with what it means to have a higher interest rate environment. That's Mm. where we're at.
1: And we had some inflation data from the U.S. yesterday. The producer price index, which tracks the prices businesses receive for their goods and services, rose one percent in January, the biggest gain in eight months. And that follows last week, consumer prices rising at their fastest pace since 1982 last year. Uh, the annual inflation rates hit 7.5%. There doesn't seem to be any good news at all on the inflation front there, Barry, with both goods and services <laughs> prices right. rising.
3: Yes, you're right. I mean, look, this this number on producer prices, that was twice the increase that was expected by the markets. So you've got producer prices rising 9.7% over the past 12 months. And, you know, that means that consumer prices will be reflected at a higher level in the weeks, months ahead. And you've got uh, gasoline that is still 40% higher than it was a year ago. Uh, Consumers are talking about it. If you look at local television, in any market in the United States, what they're talking about is higher prices at the grocery store and higher gasoline prices. Mm. So, yes, the Fed is under pressure. And the whole debate is whether the Fed has been too late or whether it's going to move too aggressively.
1: Is is the Biden administration also under pressure to do something about it? it? And if so, what can it do?
3: Well, that's a tough one, Peter, because you've got uh, the Biden administration has has designated uh, two new people to come onto the Federal Reserve Board, and the Republicans are in fact blocking it temporarily. I don't think it's going to last more than a day or two. But uh, you've got uh, Phil Jefferson, who is a academic from Davidson College. You've got Lisa Cook from Michigan State University, both black, both academic economists. And then more importantly, you've got Sarah Bloom Raskin, which a lot of Republican senators say, hold it, this woman doesn't belong on the board because she has ethical problems. Now, she's been a Fed governor before. So will the, will the president back off on this? I doubt it. There is the case that one of the senators in a tied Senate, uh, one of the Democratic senators is out because he had a stroke. He says he's going to come back soon. So the debate is... You know, whether President Biden is moving the Federal Reserve Board to the left, I think that's fair to say that he is. But will they go through? Yes, because, first of all, Jay Powell and Lael Brainard are in the same batch that has to be confirmed. So this is probably just a delay. But in answer to your question of what the president is doing, I think I have to say very little.
1: Mm, Okay, Nick, um, what does the Fed do? Um, It's in a bit of a hole, isn't it? It's got to somehow strike a balance between raising interest rates to try and tame this surging inflation, but at the same time, uh,
2: not derailing the economic recovery. What what does it do? Yeah, exactly. I think Barry phrased it really um, interestingly and correctly in the sense that, you know, the Fed is facing the pressures of maybe not having acted soon enough, and then now maybe... Potentially acting, um, kind of overcorrecting, um, and so really the question is, what what does it do? Um, our current forecast expects, um, you know, uh, five rate hikes this year of twenty five basis points each. Um, that is a forecast that you know we had before we had news from last night. I think it was the St. Louis Fed saying that they're exp- they're calling for you know a one point uh, hike uh, at the next meeting in March. Um, and so I mean the consensus is, is all over the place um, and I should note as well that even with that forecast of you know five basis point hikes this year we're still expecting inflation to actually um, outpace uh last year uh, so i think around uh, you know it'll raise around 5.2 5.4 uh, percent in 2022 and that is still with the inflation or excuse me that is still with the rate hikes that's still with an expected um you know moderation in consumer spending um right now a lot of this is, is just really uncontrollable um and i've talked about this on the show before but a lot of this is also driving from the supply chain shortages um you know as a trade guy this is what i'm really focused on um one thing that the government the biden administration could really try and do is um you know throw a bit more weight around in terms of trying to clear those backlogs at the ports um but i mean yeah, biden has talked about doing that um and he hasn't had much success to date Um, and so i think we just need a bit more creativity in terms of what can actually be done what the president actually has in his legal authority um to force those backlogs to be cleared um, because that's really one area that's weighing down on the economy
4: Louisa,
1: the market's now pricing in seven rate hikes uh, this year and also a 60% chance that the first one in March is going to be 50 basis points rather than the usual 25 basis points. What does that mean for Hong Kong, where obviously our monetary policy is tied into the US?
0: Um, yes, uh, I think overall market, uh, over equities market and, and also fixed uh, income market as well, it's going to remain volatile from here as we're heading into March uh, as more clarity uh, on Fed cycle, uh, how it's going to pan out. At the of Singapore, we're also forecasting um, this year in 2022, we will have five set rate highs, but um, like the um, speakers just mentioned, consensus has been all over the place. Um, I think one of the things for sure, is to gauges from um, what happened uh, when when the mar- when the market is heading into a Fed rate hike cycle. Uh, last time round, uh, when the Fed hike... Rate, I think, uh, as we at the early point of the rate high cycle, I mean, Hong Kong and Chinese equities market does uh, deliver negative return. Having said that, heading into the rate high cycle, on the back of improving outlook, um, the equities market did deliver double-digit equities return. And I think, at the sectorial level, we also highlight that financials obviously will be the key beneficiaries. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think uh, one of the market that is probably has the low correlation with that will be, definitely will be the A-share, i.e. the China onshore market, which is more sensitive to the Chinese uh, China policies. And mm. we do anticipate that, that the policy easing signal is to intensified going forward. So that will actually set a very uh, good stage for, for the rebound. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. You heard there, Louisa Fock, China equity strategist at the Bank of Singapore. Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets right now, uh, stocks around Asia are rallying on the back of that uh, firmness we saw in Wall Street overnight. The S&P, five, uh, the S&P, the ASX 200, I should say, in Australia up a quarter of a percent. Nikkei 225 in Japan has rebounded 2% at the Open. The Cosby in South Korea up 1.4%. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 250 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for more Money Talk. COVID update is uh, coming up right after the news with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, maximum temperature will be around 19 degrees and the outlook is for it to be windy with a few rain patches in the next couple of days. It's going to become cold appreciably with occasional rain on Saturday. The temperature right now is 16 degrees and it's 73% relative humidity.
4: Times 8.32, here's Andrew Swarovski with the half-hour news. The hospital authority says two more patients with COVID-19 died last night, a three-year-old girl and a 100-year-old woman. Here's Todd Harding. The girl had been in intensive care at the Hong Kong Children's Hospital in Kai Tak since Sunday. The hospital authority said that her condition deteriorated and she passed away at about half past eight last night. The authority said the 100-year-old woman, who had chronic illnesses, was admitted to Cheung kwan O Hospital on Monday. She died at about 8 o'clock last night. In a statement, the authority said it was saddened about the passing away of the patients and would offer the necessary assistance to their families. The girl was the second child to die in Hong Kong with the coronavirus in recent days. A four-year-old boy who died at Pok Oi Hospital on Friday also tested positive for COVID. City University says it will provide COVID testing for small mammals from next Monday and that it's liaising with the agriculture, agriculture Fisheries and Conservation Department about how to care for pets that catch the virus. Dr. Duncan Hockley is the executive director of the university's Veterinary Medical Center. The test is very- Similar to what is being used for humans, it's, uh, we have partnered with uh, Prenetics, which is a, a leading uh, diagnostic company here within Hong Kong that does COVID testing and it's a real-time PCR testing. And it will be validated here within Hong Kong for dogs and cats by Prenetics. An obstetrics professor is urging pregnant women to get vaccinated against COVID-19 after figures show around 50 of them have already tested positive this year. The same number recorded for 2020 and 2021 combined. Leona Poon from the Chinese University says the surge in cases in expected mothers is because Omicron is a highly contagious variant.
0: We have seen a surge of cases since last week, and we are aware that there have been about 50 cases uh, as of last night. So it is very clear that Omicron appears to be very contagious and is spreading very fast. And it's also been contributed by the fact that many pregnant women are unvaccinated.
4: Singapore is coming under pressure from rights groups to stop the execution this week of two men found guilty of drug trafficking. The pair, one of them Malaysian, have been on death row for 12 years. Reports say they're due to be hanged today. The United Nations Rights Office said the use of the death penalty for drugs offenses was incompatible with human rights. The office's spokesperson is Ravina Shamdazani.
0: The use of the death penalty for drug-related offences is incompatible with international human rights law. The death penalty can only be imposed for the most serious crimes, which is interpreted as crimes of extreme gravity involving intentional killing. We call on the government to commute their sentence.